You are listening to Fresh Tracks Weekly. Just know that there's also a video portion to this podcast, uh, so you can check that out on Randy Newberg Hunter YouTube channel. It will be posted there every week. Made it to episode two. Nobody told me that I can't do another one of these, so all right. Uh, we're going to go with the name Fresh Tracks Weekly, so that's what we're rolling with, and yeah, here we are. Since last week, uh, the crew's been up to a little bit. Randy went to the Washington Sportsman Show. He did a little Q&A session there. Uh, the rest of us were back in town. Michael and myself went out, did a little little exercise, a little downhill skiing. Unfortunately, some of our crew's out of the office sick. Uh, luckily, not severely, so that's good. For those of us that did stay in the office this week, Michael cooked up some elk chili, which was pretty phenomenal. I think he's working on his secret family recipe, which uh, doesn't exist yet, so it's a, a work in progress. We're starting this new thing where someone from the office cooks up lunch, a wild game meal for everyone else, the whole crew, so that's pretty fun. We're gonna make a little segment called Fresh Snacks. I'm a big fan of uh, these weekly crew lunches. As uh, hunting season progresses in the spring, this segment's gonna get a lot more exciting. We got black bear hunting in the works, turkey hunting, fishing. Uh, as soon as the ice thaws, we'll be out on the not hard water. Everyone else in the office has been super busy producing videos, editing. So on YouTube this week, you can check out our Montana deer camp. It was just kind of a, a good old-fashioned wall tent camp. Uh, it's a good time. Uh, next week on YouTube, we'll be putting out an Arizona archery elk hunt. It was with myself and Kara. Uh, it was a sufferfest. So if you're into enjoying a good sufferfest, uh, check that out on YouTube next week. As for the subscription platform, Fresh Tracks Plus, you can check out the mountain goat hunt that just dropped. Uh, it's a wild one. Definitely, if you're a subscriber, you'll want to check that out. Uh, and then next week, we'll be putting out some educational videos up there, everything from deer biology to some lessons learned that uh, Randy filmed in Nevada. So good stuff there. On the Hunt Talk podcast, Randy talks with Lydia Parker and Alex Harvey from Hunters of Color. Uh, they talk about the history of the organization and how uh, not everybody gets the same treatment in the outdoors. Definitely give that a listen. It's a pretty interesting conversation. So that's what we got going on in the office this week, and uh, now we'll kick off some headlines. We're gonna start with some feel-good news, because uh, who doesn't love a good, good feel-good story? Kentucky has been restoring elk in the state for the last 25 years, mostly on the eastern edge of the state, and they're kind of working their way west. Uh, the Wildlife Department put together a really cool YouTube video. Check it out. It was this big collaborative effort between Kentucky Department of Fish and Wildlife Resources, Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, and the United States Forest Service to expand elk populations in McCreary County. They're gonna translocate 30 to 50 elk, which is gonna expand their current range uh, further to the west. So yeah, good stuff. So the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation has committed over $1 million to wildfire restoration this year. Last year, they had this huge project. It was 19 different projects over eight states, I believe. Everything from planting seeds, sagebrush, new shrubs into these areas, all sorts of good stuff. Invasive weed control, um, stream restoration, water development maintenance. A lot of times when these fires come through, it takes out these, these old guzzlers or dirt tanks. So all of that needs to be fixed after wildfires come through. So Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation is putting a lot of money towards that. It'll be really cool to see what projects they work on this year. Another cool thing, hunters can now apply for an elk permit in Virginia. This is the first time where people have been able to hunt elk in 166 years in Virginia. So through the efforts of Virginia Department of Wildlife Resources and the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, elk have been reintroduced and now they exceed a population that can sustain a hunting season. Uh, there's gonna be five antler bull elk tags awarded in a lottery and that drawing's gonna take on May 30th. Cool stuff. In Oregon, a new bill would provide $7 million out of the general fund towards wildlife corridor projects. 
Uh, a recent study conducted by State Farm found that Oregon drivers face a higher risk of wildlife vehicle collisions than their neighboring states of California and Washington. Uh, there's over 6,000 vehicle strikes with wildlife in Oregon last year. The state only currently has five wildlife crossing structures, which is kind of lagging behind their neighboring states as well. It appears a lot of conservation and wildlife groups are very supportive of this bill, and there's very little opposition so far from what I've heard. In Tennessee, two bills have been proposed that if passed would transfer possession of the Yanali, probably saying that wrong, Yanali, Yanali, Yanali WMA from the state of Tennessee to Mari County. Uh, currently, the 12,800-acre WMA is, is open to public land hunting uh, and various other recreational opportunities. This was brought to our attention by a concerned Tennessee citizen. Uh, the main concern that is if this land is transferred, it faces an unknown future for hunters and other recreational users. The county may have other motives for the land, such as the recent efforts to develop 500 acres within the WMA to build a new agri-center as well as the county's search for, to find a new landfill site. So far, there's very little news coverage of this, so we're gonna keep an eye on it as it develops. Concerned citizen in Kansas brought to our attention Senate Bill 395, which has been introduced, and if it passes, would prohibit Kansas Department of Wildlife and Parks from go doing surveillance on private property without a warrant. Basically, if this bill is passed, if a game warden sees someone hunting on private land, they would no longer be able to check to see if they are following the state's hunting regulations. They would have to have probable cause in order to do anything. This is significant because Kansas is about 98% private land. On one side, you have the proponents of this saying that it would keep game wardens from violating the Fourth Amendment rights. They're arguing that game wardens are able to do too much without regards of private property laws. On the other side, the argument is that game wardens already have to follow all of the same constitutional laws as every other law enforcement agency. And this bill is an effort to privatize wildlife by not allowing game wardens to efficiently enforce laws in regards to publicly owned resources on private lands. As for things that we covered last week that have changed, uh, the Colorado bill that we talked about that would prohibit mountain lion, lynx, bobcat hunting, uh, that was rejected in committee, so that bill is now dead. Last week we also talked about the movement in Virginia that was to open up hunting on public lands on Sundays in the state. Uh, that I have not heard any new news on. However, I did see that South Carolina has very similar legislation that would allow Sunday hunting on wildlife management areas in South Carolina, which is currently prohibited. So multiple states are kind of having this movement of trying to open up Sunday hunting where it previously wasn't allowed. Uh, from what I understand, a lot of these states, it is allowed on private lands, but they are working on making public lands, wildlife management areas also open on Sundays. So the Montana Fish, Wildlife and Parks Commission finalized the 2022-2023 hunting regulations last week. This week, this season setting process has attracted a lot of attention from various stakeholders as significant changes were proposed. Uh, the final commission meeting happened a week ago, which uh, I sat through the entire eight hour Zoom meeting. Um, I'll try to boil it down to you to my basic understanding of what happened. The proposed hunting regulation changes did result in thousands of public comments, uh, so it was pretty interesting to see how this all unfolded. Uh, while pretty much every species did face regulation changes, most of the attention was focused around the elk regulations. Um, so they did go through everything else, but uh, yeah, the afternoon session of the elk changes was was probably the most contentious. But one interesting thing that did happen in the morning, one of the news proposals was to extend one, one hunting district season by 15 days to June 15th. Some districts already have June 15th closing dates, others close on May 31st, mostly for concern of harvest of sow black bears. During that meeting, Commissioner Pat Tabor made a motion to apply that June 15th closure date statewide, which would extend various hunting districts uh, from that May 31st deadline to June 15th. 
Uh, this prompted a lot of comment from the regional managers and uh, which Commissioner Tabor listened to and he withdrew that motion. But one thing that happened is that original proposal of the extension of the one hunting district still went through. Critics point out that the debate centered around the statewide season change and when Tabor withdrew that statewide motion, the original season setting uh, for that single unit was still passed. Um, critics also point out that Commissioner Tabor has an outfitting business that sells bear hunts in that mentioned district, which brings up whether or not there was a conflict of interest involved in that. But yeah, most everyone in the meeting was there to talk about elk. I'll back up a little bit and try to lay a little groundwork of kind of the some key points for Montana elk hunting regulations. Um, and this is going to be super oversimplified. If you're involved in this, if you're not, then it might be uh, too complicated. I don't know. This is my interpretation of it though. So Montana has a lot of elk. Uh, we also have about 65% of the land in Montana is privately held while about 35% is public. Uh, so a lot of the elk live on the private land. Hunter access on private land is very limited so most of the hunting pressure occurs on public land. So this creates conflict. FWP in theory has to follow these objectives that were set by an elk management plan in 2005. These objectives are based largely on social tolerance of elk, mostly in the form of landowner conflicts because uh, elk will affect their bottom line, whether they're cattle grazing or ranching, farming, you name it, elk can have an effect on their bottom line, it creates conflict, that's where we're at. So a lot of the ideas that were being pushed by the director of FWP, Hank Warsek, were in theory to reduce elk numbers in these areas that are over objective. So his first idea was to just give out more elk tags across the board, bull, cow, private land, public land, just more tags across the board. Um, and to keep in mind, that's a very simplified explanation. It, it, it was a little more complicated than that. But the idea, this idea made the public land hunters very mad because it would very likely result in more crowded public land and likely push elk to private land. So several iterations later, back and forth with the public and the commission, the proposal was still giving out more elk tags in general, but with new limitations. Um, so critics were stating that giving out more more tags doesn't necessarily equal more dead elk, which is the stated goal. Uh, but what instead the proposal suspiciously does offer is freeing up more bull elk tags to non-residents and helps outfitters get more tags for their clients. So where we're at now, after all the dust settled after this meeting, the regulations are now set for the 2022-2023 hunting seasons. So the commission amended these proposals to be significantly less drastic. Uh, they basically slowed down. They, they'd still made some changes for sure, uh, but it appears that they listened to the, the concerns of the public land hunter and they, they definitely slowed everything down. There's undoubtedly a lot of confusion during this meeting between the public and the commission and what amendments were being made. Everything was happening relatively fast when it all came down to it. Uh, but here's my oversimplified, again, version of what happened and I'll try to explain it in the differences that, from this year going forward for, compared to last year. So, if a hunter now draws a limited elk permit, they can now only hunt in that unit for that season. Previously, they could bounce around between that special draw tag that they had and the general units. Uh, more limited elk tags are available than last year, but it wasn't a crazy increase like initially proposed. Um, there will be unlimited cow permits uh, available in several regions. Uh, from what I can tell, they're not gonna be valid on national forest lands, but they're gonna be available on private BLM and state land, which in the units that they're talking about is mostly the public land is BLM and state. There is some U.S. Fish Wildlife Service that will be excluded and some Forest Service, but uh, that's kind of a contentious thing. It, we'll see how that all shakes out. It's uh, hard to really 
graph the, the whole uh, what's going to happen there. A few units that previously had a harvest quota now have unlimited archery permits or included in the general season, but this is far less than what was in the initial proposal. Some hunting district boundary changes occurred that could potentially qualify new areas for liberalized elk, liberalized elk harvest that were not previously qualified. Uh, we're not really sure how that's going to shake out yet, but it'll be interesting to see. Um, elk shoulder seasons, which were pitched years ago as an experiment, are now more set in stone into the regulations. And if you're not familiar with shoulder seasons, it's basically uh, an extension on the regular season before and after. It kind of extends the elk season to be around six months of the year. So that's more set in stone now. It's gonna be hard to tell what the impact of all of this will be, but realistically, the changes that were actually adopted were, it's not that drastically different from previous years, uh, at least compared to the initial proposals put forward. From my opinion, from the perspective of a public land hunter, of how this is going to change the landscape next year, uh, is some areas are going to have a little more hunting, hunter crowding than before, uh, but some areas I think are going to actually have less hunter crowding. Um, a few units that had small chunks of public land uh, will now kind of, they're going to be ruined, honestly, uh, because those general and unlimited tags, they're, um, they're going to pressure the elk off those public chunks onto the private land. Those units are primarily big chunks of private land, but it's kind of a, a sacrifice, I guess. Um, but yeah, the, the private landowners will now be able to get the tags that they want in those units. So for now, I would say you could mostly chalk it up as a win to the public land hunter. One of the big take-home messages for me is, for a long time, there's been this big push to give more bull elk permits to those with the deepest pockets. Um, basically, whether it's in the form of an outfitted hunter or uh, non-resident landowners, it's just like, you know, leaning towards privatization of wildlife. And that's what's getting these public land hunters most fired up and kind of uh, trying to knock those proposals back down. So we're going to do a deeper dive into this. I already kind of started that deeper dive, but we're going to get Randy. And we're going to talk about the public trust doctrine in his, uh, what he's coining the bulls for billionaire segment. Of all the pieces you might ever have me jump in on, this is one I feel comfortable with because I've been a trustee for 30 years as yeah. a CPA, so I understand trusts really, really well. I don't understand wildlife science <laughs> like you do, but this is one I might actually have some legitimate comments on. Yeah. So. No, I'm excited to dive into that, but... Uh... Yeah, I think, it, I think it's important to point out too, like just in, with our show, we film on public land mm -hmm. and hunt public wildlife, basically. Right. Some states and, were a resident, some states were a non-resident. Yep, yep. And I, but I grew up hunting, hunting wildlife out on public lands, and so it's like a, a hot topic for me. I get kind mm -hmm. of, I get excited about it. Yep. I get like kind of the, fired up, and I, so. I it, think yeah. most everybody gets fired up on these topics, one, because of our passion for wild yeah. places and wild things, but also, over time, we've all come to understand, even if we don't see how it is by definition, a resource held in trust for the public. Mm -hmm. And it's a state and provincial-based system we operate in in North America. Yep. And so the public trust doctrine goes back to 1842. There was a case where somebody said, hey, the King of England gave me all these hunting and fishing rights here, mostly as fishing rights. And the court said, no, when the king got kicked out, you're right, gone. Now these assets are held in trust, no matter where they exist, whether they exist on public land or private land, these wildlife assets are held in trust for the citizens of that state. So 
that's a really profound statement and there's been case after case that has reaffirmed that. So here we are in 2022 and we're operating under a public trust doctrine for yeah. wildlife. And you, you were explaining this to me before we started filming and like break down the public mm -hmm. trust doctrine. And if, because we're familiar with it and we're kind of on Montana right now, we're familiar yep. with Montana, you were gonna use them as an example, yeah. right? So. so we can use Montana as an example, but I'll, I'll use other states, I'll interject some other states to give maybe uh, an understanding of why it is the way it is yeah. or where it isn't what we sometimes think it is. So every trust compo is composed of three different things. A trustee, some assets the trustee has to manage, and beneficiaries that the trustee is accountable to, beholden to, for managing those assets. Mm -hmm. That's pretty simple. Mm -hmm. And well, so yeah. most people probably think of a private trust. You know, how many times have you heard, yeah, I set up a trust for my grandkids. That's a private trust. A public trust is very similar. It's got the same components. And first thing someone says is, well, who's my trustee then? It's pretty much any elected or appointed official who has vested powers to enact or modify or adjust wildlife policy. So it might be your legislature, it might be your governor, it might right. be your commission, most commissions are appointed. Now, again, yeah. because this is state-based, how we do it in Montana isn't necessarily how they do it in Vermont right. or how they do right. it in Florida. Yeah. So when people think about how it applies in their state, they gotta be understanding that this is state-based. Right. So. But yeah, in some level, at the basic level, the state government in some form is mm -hmm. responsible for allocating yep. the wildlife <laughs> resource to the beneficiaries, i.e. the residents of the state. Exactly. Yeah. And in Montana, like most states, we have actually enacted statutes to say, here's how our trustees must operate to make sure they're listening to the beneficiaries, i.e. the citizens of the state. So in Montana, we have public notices, we mm -hmm. have have to have public comment and there you got to give them this much time you got if you change anything on the agenda you got to open reopen it back to public comment da 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 so right. the state itself actually has built some structure of how the trustees are required to operate on behalf of the beneficiaries and it gives us beneficiaries the right to engage in the policy and mechanisms to engage in the policy. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's as simple as I can make it because it really gets complicated when you dive into the details. Right. So how often do you say, well, that's not fair. I'm a non-resident, that's not fair. Hear it all the time. Yeah, but like you were saying, it's to the residents of that state. Right. So, so it's up to the whole collective to decide exactly how a non-resident might might get to might or, yeah i i would really love to go whitetail hunting in iowa or mm -hmm. hunting deer whatever in wyoming or you know wherever else mm -hmm. but i'm not a i'm not a resident citizen of those states so i technically am not a beneficiary of the public trust that is it holds in trust the the deer resource in iowa right so any opportunity that I get to go to Iowa is merely because their trustees and their, their judgment or their operation for the state citizens said, by letting all these non-residents come here and pay so much money, yep. 
it keeps all of our other beneficiaries at a much lower price. So we think that's good for the overall management of this trust. Yep. So I can get mad, scream, yell all I want, but I don't have any standing <laughs> as an Iowa citizen. So I'm, on, I'm only there along for whatever the beneficiaries and the trustees say I'm allowed to do. But even understanding that, but then each state, like how they allocate to their residents, mm -hmm. this wildlife resource can be drastically different. And, Huge. And, but in theory, they all follow the same right. idea of the public yep. trust doctrine yep. that the wildlife are owned by the people, but Held it can be- trust by the, for the people, yep. Yeah, so, but they can be, but that can, the way that's allocated can be drastically different. Way like, different. I feel like it matters how much public land is in that state. Because like oh, yeah. in Texas, for instance, when it's majority privately held land, yeah, it's going to be very private. different how they manage their wildlife resources compared to a state where it's 50% public private land. Mm -hmm. So I feel like the hot, hotly debated or contentious states that are like Montana, Idaho, Wyoming, New Mexico, Mm -hmm. uh, I'm a missing mix. a few Arizona, but oh, yeah, I mean, like yeah. it's just like states where it's like a mixture across the landscape mm -hmm. of private public land. That seems to to me, I guess, where it's a lot of the hotly debated mm -hmm. topics like this. And like you were talking with, they have landowner vouchers in uh, various states. New Mexico is like one of the big examples of how right. they have the transferable, and that's significant right. because the landowner can resell them, mm -hmm. and so it's not like they just get a tag to hunt their own land. Right. They can profit. Mm -hmm and a lot of times a significant amount right. to allow someone else to hunt their land. Yeah. Or, yeah. But anyway. So you, you take all of those, and if we go to the Montana example. So the campaign I called Bulls for Billionaires, right? Uh, that was driven by a lot of non-resident billionaire landowners. Yeah. They are not even a beneficiary under Montana's public trust. Mm -hmm. They're not even citizens of this state. So our trustees have no accountability to those people other than if they feel an arrangement with them can help the trust corpus and help all the beneficiaries. Gotcha. Because these trustees are held to some standards. They have to operate with full transparency. Mm -hmm. Without transparency, you don't have trust. And this is whether it's a financial trust or a private trust or whether it's a public trust. They have to operate for the equal benefit of all beneficiaries. Mm -hmm. There can be no conflict of interest and no self-dealing. So if you're a trustee and you're receiving campaign contributions from a non-beneficiary who doesn't live in this state, I think you, you, you better watch it. You, you're, yeah. you as an elected official have this fiduciary duty to all of us beneficiaries and oh, because someone made a campaign contribution, you're going to go and benefit a non-beneficiary? Ooh, boy, I don't know that you want to go there. The other part is you have to be beholden to, as a trustee, you are beholden to the current beneficiaries and future beneficiaries. And that's why our model is always thinking about the next generation and the future is because in a trust arrangement, you can't just say, I'm going to kill all the wildlife for the current people alive. You can't do that if there are what they, what's called remainder or future beneficiaries. Right. You have to manage with them in mind also. Yeah. So it's actually a really good arrangement for sustainability if it's followed. Yeah. 
we talked about how each state's going to allocate resources differently. Do we want to dive in a little bit on how, like some of the examples, we already brought mm -hmm. up New Mexico. Mm -hmm. Like even in Montana, though, we do have landowner-sponsored deer do. tags already. Right. Elk tags got a lot more <coughs> traction and a lot more people yeah. fired so. up. but. Um, there's Nevada has some land undertakes, but that one's interesting Colorado, because... Colorado, all kinds of them. Yeah, but um, Nevada's mostly public land, and so it's mm -hmm. like, it <clears throat> operates at a way lower level. Colorado right. has them. Um, but mean, anyway, it, there, it, but it, there, there, that's not the only way, I guess. I'll go so far as to say, Montana, we've got some issues because we give away 15% of our limited entry tags to landowners. Mm -hmm. So our trustees, somewhere along the way, said it's worth taking 15% of the trust corpus yeah. in those units that are limited entry and giving those to certain people, whether they're residents, non-residents, right. as long as they're a landowner meet this criteria, we're going to give those to them. Mm -hmm. Well, Mr. or Mrs. Trustee, what did you get out of it for those of us who are beneficiaries? Did you get us higher objectives? No. Did you get us access to adjacent or landlocked? Uh, public ground? Nope. Right. What'd you get for us? <laughs> so, yeah. The, you know, when you start getting into allocating resources that are held in trust for the public, you as a trustee better damn well get something for it. Yeah. And then I could go to Nevada and someone say, oh, you know, they're transferable. Okay. If I'm a trustee in Nevada, I'd say, well, look, we started out our state wildlife plan for elk only, it was capped out at 3,000 elk. That's what everyone agreed to. Well, through this program, by giving away one and a half percent of the corpus to these landowners who now they, they gotta provide public access, they gotta allow you through their ranch to get to landlocked public lands. Now they agreed that we could have 15,000 elk in Nevada. So by just giving away one and a half percent, all of a sudden you get a 500% increase in opportunity for all the beneficiaries. So I'm not saying one's right, one's wrong. Right. I'm saying it's a reflection of what that state wanted to do. And the trustee has the latitude to say, so long as I am managing this trust in a way that benefits all the beneficiaries mm -hmm. today and in the future, I can say I've, I've, fulfilled my fiduciary duty as a trustee. Gotcha. And so, yeah, it's interesting because I'm just thinking Montana-centric because I'm close mm -hmm. to it and I see it. Like, how how we got to this current regulation setting season that kind of, like, got us on this topic talking about it. Mm -hmm. Like, we want to, like, lay the baseline of how we got there. And, like, I think one of the big, big things is that a lot of these wealthy landowners, like the out-of-state billionaires or whatever, but right. not just them, but they hold a ton of the elk on their private property. Mm -hmm. The wildlife, wherever it exists, whether it goes from public to private to mm -hmm. public, or if it stays on private, when you buy that land in Montana, you buy it with wildlife as a condition of the land, and you buy it knowing you don't own those elk. Right. <clears throat> but a lot of people move here and think, those are my elk. In some practicality, it feels that way because you control access to the deeded land. But that doesn't mean the state has to bend over backwards to manage elk according to your desires. Because they're the public's elk. So yeah. what benefits the public? Yeah. 
But I guess to boil it down in like a very simple terms, this is my perspective, and it's mm -hmm. and it's gonna like boil it down probably too simple. But it's almost it almost seems like the logic goes: if we give if we reward these landowners with bull elk tags every mm -hmm. year, that out of the goodness of their heart, they will allow more public access, which will allow us to reduce. Like, because one of the big goals is to reduce elk numbers. Right. They say they want to reduce elk. They want uh, these units are over objective. They want to reduce elk numbers, and so. Mm -hmm. You will reward these landowners, and then they will allow access to reduce elk on their on their mm -hmm. property in the whole unit or the unit as a whole. I guess that's like a super simplified version of mm -hmm. it. But it just, to me, it, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't seem no. logical. It's not without, gonna work that way. Yeah, I, I I just don't I don't fully understand it. I guess, but that's mm -hmm. like that's like I feel like that's what is so, the story that's being told to me. Right. Montana hunters came out in force the last three months. Mm -hmm. And our appointed trustees, who are commissioners, told our department, whoa, whoa, wait a second. We're as much a trustee as you are. You brought these proposals forward. We don't like it. Yeah. So they rejected a lot of it. So it's, the, you know, the stated goal. Now that, so then this gets to, is the trustee required to give everyone access to those elk? Maybe, maybe not, but they certainly aren't required to give one party, one group of beneficiaries access over another. Right. Or they certainly aren't required to give access to some non-beneficiary people, these wealthy non-residents, and get nothing for the beneficiaries. Yeah. It's okay if you do something with a non-beneficiary, but make sure you get something for the beneficiaries in return. This was kind of like, you know, all for us and nothing for you. Yeah. And I guess it, we probably should like, I don't want to just like think that we're bashing on no. private landowners because mm -hmm. there are a lot of really good stewards right. of the land that have provided huge great that, habitat for, for the public's wildlife. Yeah. For And so, that's but it just, it, I get nervous when you start to no. reward, like, Again, boiling it down in simple terms, we start to reward the wealthy or anyone who has deep pockets is going to get more access than mm -hmm. those who don't right. when it's a public resource. Right. And as trustee, you have to weigh that. Am I getting something for the public mm -hmm. for whatever I do over here? So we have block management where the trustees, our wildlife appointed and elected officials said, we're going to take money. Mm -hmm. that we collected mostly from non-residents, not all, and we're going to go pay some landowners. Yep. Well, if they just paid landowners and we got nothing in return, we'd be up in arms. But in return, but, but we in get return, access. we get access to the public's wildlife. Yep. So the trustees can rest comfortable saying, hey, you know what, just about every beneficiary tells us we entered into a good deal here. What you're talking about is, Let's take a public asset again, instead of money, like license fees, tags. And if we give those to this group over here, we better make sure we're getting something for it. And maybe it can't be done in an arrangement that gets the public anything. And if that's the case, we shouldn't do it. Mm -hmm. Because as trustees, we're not following our fiduciary duty. Trustees have to operate within the context of where they are and what landscape, what state. So in Montana, we're two thirds private, one third public. Mm -hmm. Without giving 
deference in cases to private landowners with game damage, with being accountable for special seasons, with whatever. Right. You could lower their tolerance for wildlife in your policies you adopt, and that would be to the detriment of the trust and its beneficiaries. So in a state with a lot of private land like Montana, you have to balance that. Yeah. And make sure that these really good private land stewards don't get mad and say, heck with this, you know, let's make this a wildlife wasteland. Because that would be to the detriment of the trust and the beneficiaries. So it's every decision the trustee has to use these, you know, transparency, accountability, no self-dealing, protect yeah. the, you know, they got to weigh all that stuff with every management decision. Yeah. Where the friction comes is when we think that they aren't doing that. Yeah. And another point I really like to make too is, uh, you know, as a United States resident, whatever state you live in, mm-hmm. you have, you, like, yeah, you don't get it, like you said, you don't get to just do whatever you want, but you do have input and you do have mm-hmm. influence on what happens right. via the elected officials. And then it's also talking with them and then, you know, lobbying them one way or the other right. for however you Email, feel meetings, fit phone is calls. Yeah. what's best for the residents of your state so yeah um and that this basic principle applies in every state mm-hmm. so if i go down to florida and say you know this is what i think they're going to be like get out of here you're not even a resident you, yeah. you aren't one of our beneficiaries mm-hmm. but all 50 states all canadian provinces operate on a very similar structure where these trustees are beholden to the citizens of their state. And so far, it's worked pretty good. And as things change and our, you know, the way our society changes, there's always going to be sorting out of what's working and what's not working. Yeah. 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 That's why I think it's worth talking about these things on a show like this. So people understand if that's happening in your state and you feel like you're getting the wool pulled over your eyes, that's violating transparency. It's violating all these other trustee duties. Speak up, hold people accountable. Because think about if Montana citizens hadn't held our trustees accountable. Yeah. We would have been stuck with a policy called Bulls for Billionaires. Right. Or at least called that by Randy Newbert. <laughs> and a large group of non-beneficiaries, non-resident billionaire landowners would have driven this huge trust asset, i.e. elk and elk hunting opportunity, for their benefit, all to the detriment of the beneficiaries. So these trusts aren't like solid walls. They're always in flux and moving based on what the state, the, the, of that state, the, their beneficiaries, their law, their, mm-hmm. you know, things change over time. And trusts do change over time in trying to stay accountable to the beneficiaries. So if the beneficiaries never show up, the trustees are like, well, I guess they think this is okay. Yeah, sure. Boom. They approve it. Right. And no, that's an interesting topic. It's a, yeah, yeah we got, we've we gone down some rabbit holes, but it's it a is, lot of opportunity for future episodes to dive deeper oh, into any it, aspects of this. But when, when we get into public trust doctrine stuff, Marcus, that's where I'm like nerding out, man. I'm like, yeah. sign me up, get someone else to do the other pieces. I'm, but this I'm stuff, learning a lot. Yeah. And nothing scares a trustee more than when a CPA or an attorney shows up <laughs> because we know trust concepts, we know trust law. 
Mm -hmm. And they're like, uh-oh. I've said many times, I think if you are appointed or elected as a trustee of a wildlife or you know, a state wildlife system, you should have to go to a, at least a full day of training on the public trust doctrine. And how many hours do you suppose any of these trustees have had on trust issues? Yeah. <laughs> Just what they've researched themselves. Yeah. So thanks no, for having me. Oh, thanks I'm, for being here. It's, it's, a, it's a heavy topic. And I think uh, the Wildlife Society and that technical review I referenced, maybe we'll put it in the link in the description, but uh, right at the beginning of that, they, they open it up with a Theodore Roosevelt quote. So I think mm -hmm. we should close this out with that, with that quote. And... Uh, Mm -hmm. Let that sink in. Defenders of the short-sighted men who in their greed and selfish will, if permitted, rob our country of half its charm by the reckless extermination of all useful and beautiful wild things, sometimes seek to champion them by saying that the game belongs to the people. So it does, and not merely to the people now alive, but to the unborn people. The greatest good for the greatest number applies to the number within the womb of time, compared to which those now alive form but an insignificant fraction. Our duty to the whole, including the unborn generations, bids us to restrain an unprincipled present-day minority from wasting the heritage of those unborn generations. The movement for the conservation of wildlife and the larger movement for the conservation of all our natural resources are essentially democratic in spirit, purpose, and method.